I'm going to have you turn to a selection of verses this morning, some that we just read, others that were not read. Uh, so first, I'm going to have you go to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 4, verse 11. And I'll try to give you a few minutes uh, each time to find that place. If you do not have a copy of the Scriptures with you, you'll, you should find one in the chair rack underneath in front of you. Revelation 4, 11 uh, The letters to the churches have just been recorded in Revelation 2 and 3 in response to the vision of Christ in Revelation 1. And here we have in Revelation 4, 11, as you enter into the very like throne room, central worship of God, this statement. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And here's why. For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Either God is worshipped as Lord and Creator, or He is not. It's that simple. It's that simplistic. Either God is treasured as our fortress and security, or someone or something else is. Either God is looked to for help and safety, or He isn't. Either God is trusted all times or He isn't. And either God is worshipped as King of kings and Lord of lords or something or someone else is. That's, that's the decision we make. And one of the reasons we gather this morning is to place our gaze then and affection, not just our gaze, but our affections upon the one true King. And if we do that through singing, through praying, through giving, through the listening to His Word, then what happens is it should remove or at least replace an anxious fixation on lesser or wrong things. It's one of the importances of gathering together with a unified voice is that we look to God alone as King and Creator and Lord. I, I think I chuckled out loud this past week uh, when I thought about the many churches and businesses who at the outset of this year in January, probably used 2020 to develop sort of a theme for the year, right? The double meaning of 2020. For instance, 2020 clear vision or a clear sighted mission or perfect vision for the year ahead or some other worn out cliche based on 2020. And I chuckled because who would have expected the year that we have had? Right? If anything, let me, let me play on that clear vision. If anything is clear, what has been clearly revealed to us is that we do not know what a year or a month or a week or a day or folks, even this hour holds. We really don't know how a virus or a transition in government will affect us. So go back to the basics. James 4.13, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, James reminds his readers, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James borrowed this idea from Proverbs 27 verse 1, which says this, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. I think another thing we've learned this year uh, is that major changes can introduce frayed nerves and strained relationships. Not excluding tension and disagreements between family and friends and church members. 
those, those things that should be the closest and most unified can be attacked through difficult times. A pandemic, politics, church protocols and procedures, differing views and sensitivities on quarantining and masks, they all add tension to the closest things that we enjoy in relationship. The year 2020 has been the hot water of the popular teabag illustration. How many of you have heard the, the teabag and the hot water illustration? Okay, originally it was J. Allen Patterson who included this illustration in a small pamphlet. I still remember it was a blue pamphlet with, with bold red lettering on the front and it says, your reactions are showing. How many of you have read that pamphlet? Okay, three of us. It is an older pamphlet. Other authors, um, popular authors, have taken that idea of the teabag in the hot water and have further developed it, but it was originally J. Allen Patterson. And he says this, Were a person to watch my actions, he would not really know me. My actions would not reveal to him what I really am, because my actions might be planned and practiced for his benefit. But it is our reactions, our spontaneous unconscious, unscheduled reactions that reveal what we really are. Have we ever been in hot water? How did we respond? Like the dark brown color that comes from the tea bag, something unchristian shows up in our reactions. We cannot blame someone else for putting that into us. The truth is, he or she, like the hot water, merely brought out what was dominant in us at the moment. The hot water did not put the color in the tea bag or the taste in the tea, it simply brought the color and taste out. So this is what our reactions do. They reveal what is already in us. The hot water doesn't create the taste. It merely reveals it. In contrast, Elizabeth Elliot says this, a cup brimful of sweetness cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, no matter how suddenly Jarred. So in light of this kind of year, I want us to consider five stabilizing truths that will help us in unstable times. Uh, there, there, there could be hundreds of these truths. So to select five uh, is a grace to you to allow us to get through these in the next 30 minutes. Let's consider five of these. The first stabilizing truth is found in Job 42.2. So on your device or in your scriptures, go to Job 42, verse 2. Here's the first stabilizing truth. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. No purpose of His can be undermined or prevented or overwhelmed or undone. Okay, Job 42, verse 2 says this. I know that you can do all things. Okay, it's Job saying this after this long interaction with three Four friends and God. Now God reveals Himself to Job and Job's response, Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The book of Job displays the mystery of relationship between God and humanity. And it unveils an important truth. God is central to life even in a life marked with suffering. 
And that's the point. Even when life doesn't go the way we expect it to, or even when life doesn't go the way we think it ought to, or it includes details not to our liking, we know this. We know that God can do all things and no purpose of His can be thwarted. Leighton Talbert, in his book, Beyond Suffering, which is a book about Job, writes this. God is unquestionably sovereign, sometimes inscrutable, but always righteous, aware, compassionate, and good in all He does or allows. I love those, that description. Unquestionably sovereign. Remember from last week what a sovereign is? A sovereign is simply a ruler or a king or a lord. And Scripture often refers to God as one who rules over all. It even uses the term sovereign lord on several occasions. I'm not sure how you've interpreted the events of last week. I've talked with several of you, uh, both supporting different candidates last week. And I'm not sure how you've responded to the events or how you will respond to how those events will sort of continue to unfold into the new year, probably. But here's what we need to know this morning. If it's going to be a stabilizing truth, God's sovereignty means that everything happens according to his plan. Do you believe that? Okay, so even when suffering touches us personally or touches our children, God's sovereignty means whether you understand it or not or like it or not, is that everything happens according to his plan. So God's ultimate kingship means this. There are no boundaries where he doesn't rule. North Korea is not out of bounds for God. North Korea does not need to give God permission to come in. Nobody can say that their throne overwhelms God's throne. There is no realm that God cannot overwhelm and there is no throne that He cannot overrule. That is a truth of God's sovereignty. That's part of what it means for God to be God. So, how do we apply that to this last week and, and the events that we'll probably be faced with over the next several weeks? Nothing can prevent God from accomplishing His purpose. Not voter fraud, if that happened, not questionable mail-in ballots, not party manipulation, not a colorful list of other details and accusations, whether true or false. Nothing can undermine the sovereignty of God. God is God, and we know, Job 42, verse 2, look at it again, we know that He can do all things and that no purpose of His can be thwarted. You know, it's interestingly in the book of Job, if you, were to, if you were to describe the book of Job with one word, just one word, probably begins with an S, what word would you choose? And go ahead and say it. One word. Were you saying sovereign? You can't borrow my word. Okay, let me tell you what you were thinking, since the media likes to tell us that anyway. Let me tell you what you, you were thinking suffering, Right. Some, how many of you were thinking suffering, right? Look out there. Everybody raised their hand. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Um, it is not about suffering, which is amazing. We think it's about suffering because we identify with that aspect of this particular book. But what is actually central, it doesn't start with an S, it's God. God is central. 
And that's what suffering and doubt produce, a serious consideration of who God is. When unrest or sickness or a virus or events go sideways for you, it's intended for you as a believer to give a serious consideration of who God is. King Nebuchadnezzar, like Job, I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who saw the who saw this dream, misinterpreted his dream, built this huge image, wanted everybody to worship it. Of course, there was some self-interest in it because he's the head of gold. Actually, it was Babylon who's the head of gold. He wants everybody to worship it. He ultimately then realized this. Now I, Daniel 4.37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right in all his ways are just. The first stabilizing truth is this. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. It is God who reigns. And here's our response. Let us praise God for His sovereign goodness. Let's look at the second stabilizing truth. Turn to Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33. There's an image here that that we are not familiar with. And Proverbs 16.33 says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the basic idea here is God, not chance, decides the outcome. This is one of the beautiful benefits of believing in the sovereign goodness of God. Not only is he in complete control, but his control is marked by his goodness. That's who he is. The Hebrew word lot most likely refers to the stones that were cast to get a decision. The Urim and Thummim. Though uncertain in its definition, some people believe it means the lights and the perfections. They were elements of the breastplate worn by initially Aaron, the high priest, And people think they were two objects that were rolled, not unlike dice, to get an answer. Usually the answer was a simple yes or no. Or usually the answer was a simple, is it this person or this person? Okay, you can see that. It's a very interesting study in the Old Testament on into the New Testament of the Urim and Thummim. The assumption was this, that God would determine the cast and thus provide the answer to the question that was posed. The lot was a solemn matter. They didn't always reach for the, um, the, the, the umum and thumum, urim and thumum, but they would wait until they had to give up all human responsibility and simply say, whatever this says is the answer from the Lord. Interestingly, the last time we see it used is the chapter just before God gives his Holy Spirit to believers. In Acts chapter 1, listen to this. And they prayed... And said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Remember, there were two men selected to fulfill the role that Judas had been fulfilling. They said, you who know the hearts of all, because they were torn between two good people. Show us which one you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. For them, And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is what is interesting. The reference in Acts 
like the way you see the Urim and Thummim used throughout scriptures, is about not just God's control of random circumstances, though he is, that's taught elsewhere, but how he disposes of and decides on specific instances that are addressed to him about settling of matters properly referred to him. Do you believe God still does that? Okay, not with the Urim and Thummim or with dice or with sort of the spin of a bottle. But last Sunday we prayed for our nation and our nation's election. And we prayed, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did God do that? Did God answer that? And the answer is yes. The clear implication from Proverbs 16.33 is this. The Lord decides the final outcome of matters given to him. Nothing is left to chance. So here's the second stabilizing truth. Every decision is from the Lord. It is God who reigns. Let us praise God for his sovereign goodness. Okay, turn, turn to Proverbs 21, verse 1. You're in the book of Proverbs. Just go forward a few chapters. And let's consider a third stabilizing truth. And this truth ought to be a comfort to everyone, regardless of who you wanted to see be elected. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Charles Bridges, in an older commentary, said this, quote, the great sovereign turns the most despotic rule, all political projects to his own purposes, with the same ease that the rivers of water are turned by every inflection of the channel. If you see that, that phrase, stream of water, uh, it's better interpreted as water courses, which I think is the idea conveyed there. Uh, but it's the idea of a small irrigation canal under the farmer's care. I remember as a boy, after the rain, and the rain started dissipating, going to a puddle and actually taking a stick, a broken off twig, and tracing from the puddle a little channel. How many of you have done that? And you watch the water sort of follow the path you create. And you kind of make a zigzag, and of course it follows that, and then gathers at the bottom. That's the idea of the streams of water. And that is the ease with which God can take any king's heart and direct it. He will do that with our currently serving president. He will direct it. He will do that with the president-elect and the vice president-elect. He will direct it. And that is a comfort of God's people that God is actively, currently, present tense, directing as an irrigation channel the hearts of all the rulers. And this will bring in an incredible contentment and peace to the hearts of of believers. In Daniel, Daniel answered and said this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. This is exactly what God has been doing throughout history, what He will continue to do so that His purposes are unfolded and fulfilled to precise detail. So that's the third stabilizing truth. The Lord turns the king's heart wherever he will. It is God who reigns. Let us praise God 
for his sovereign goodness. Here's the fourth stabilizing truth. Turning your Bible to Acts chapter 4. This is one of the passages that Melissa read for us this morning. It's actually a prayer in response to persecution and opposition. This one's a little longer, so if you're, if you're taking notes, I'll read it twice. Even the most unexpected and surprising events are predetermined by God. Okay? Even the most unexpected and surprising events are predetermined by God. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were questioned by the religious authorities over the healing of a crippled man. They were warned not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Of course, their well-known response, you can see it in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This was not just like, you know, carte blanche, defiance against government, but here it is a defiance against them saying you need to be muzzled about preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. The authorities further threatened them, realized they didn't have anything to hang on them, so they released them. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now notice their response, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, by the way, that's what we call prayer. They they lifted their voices together to God and said, look at the first word out of their mouth. Sovereign Lord. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. This prayer is a reflection on the sovereignty of God in the midst of opposition Sovereign Lord actually translates a single Greek word. And I want you to hear the word because you'll, you'll probably recognize its English sort of companion. Despotes. That's the word used here for Lord, Sovereign Lord, instead of the more common, often used word, curious, which means Lord. But here it is despotes. Despotes was used for the relation of a master to a slave. Classical writers used it for someone who had Absolute authority, dictator, or what is the other word? A despot. That's where we get the English word. They actually put that word together with God's uh, work as creator. Look at this again. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The implication is this. The one who created the world is more powerful than those whom he created even the ones who fill office, the office and authority of rulers. Interestingly, the prayer moves on. They cry out, Sovereign Lord, Creator, and they actually then move to quote Psalm 2. And the apostles see in the fulfillment of that psalm uh, the time when Herod and Pontius Pilate forged an unholy confederacy against Jesus. Look at Acts 4, verse 25. They're actually quoting Psalm 2 here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, in the next two verses, what they do here in Acts, what Luke does is he connects the quotation of Psalm 2 with its fulfillment. 
Look at verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod. Okay, he was a king who put him on the throne. Well, God did. And Pontius Pilate, a ruler. Okay, who placed him in charge? God did. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's the mystery. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that highlights a historical alliance where kings and rulers and people set themselves against God. And what happened, what actually unfolded, was the rejection, arrest, mocking, torture, beating, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There's the mystery. And yet that was what God's hand had intended to do in what He predestined to take place. And it seems as though they succeeded in removing the king. But there's a word in Psalm 2, verse 1 that is surprising. Many of you already know that psalm. Several summers ago, we worked through it in our summer, summer in the Psalms. And it is this, the peoples plotted in vain. It was nothingness. It was emptiness. It was futility. And the psalmist began his psalm by saying this, why do the nations rage? Why do they do this? And the simple answer is this. Because, because the king, the son, the anointed, the begotten, all four terms used in Psalm 2, had to be crucified. That's why they're raging. And it is all under the sovereign control of a good God. Psalm 2 is quoted seven times in the New Testament. And what is important is that the identity of the anointed, the king, the son, the begotten of Psalm 2 is never left open to debate. In the New Testament, the psalm is always quoted with reference to Jesus. Twice in Acts, twice in Hebrews, three times in Revelation. So, so here's what we need to know. Regardless of who is over us, remember when Jesus was born, he was not under the kind governance of Jerusalem, which was not always kind. But he was under an occupying power called Rome. God designed the horrific events of the cross in fulfillment of Psalm 2 to accomplish the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of humanity. And that is this. And it's something that touches us this morning. The salvation and the redemption of sinners. Here's the fourth stabilizing truth. Even the most unexpected and surprising events are pre determined by God. It is God who reigns. Let us praise God for His sovereign goodness. Lastly, fifthly, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. This is where we started. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are a unified vision. They're like two separate canvas paintings or pictures when placed side by side form a complete picture. Sean just hung something like this in his office this past week. Okay, it's a single picture, but they're two different canvases. They stand alone, but when brought together, it's more of a panoramic full view. That's what Revelation 4 and 5 do. This two panel sort of visionary painting presents the heavenly throne room of God. Revelation 4, the first side of this picture, is a collage of Old Testament images taken from Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. 
And all this is showing, just like Psalm 2 and Acts 4, is that the Scriptures must be fulfilled and that God is sovereign over every single detail that is happening. So chapters 4 and 5 belong together, addressing the central and centering vision of the throne of God. Okay, that's the first picture. And Revelation chapter 5 is the Lamb of God. And when you initially put them together, it doesn't seem like they form an appropriate picture. Let me explain. Here you have God on his throne in concentric circles with torches of fire and elders and celestial beings. It's an amazing picture as you get a glimpse into the throne room of God. And on this canvas is a lamb and it looks like it had been slain. So you have the picture of this animal with blood, think sacrifice. And these canvases don't seem like you should be able to connect them in one image initially. The word throne is used 43 times from Revelation chapter 4 through the end of the book. It is used 19 times in chapters 4 and 5. The word lamb referring to Christ is used 30 times. These reveal in picture the essential theology of the book that the sovereign enthroned God is the slain lamb. So these, these portraits actually do, these canvases do fit together. So in these concentric circles, seven flaming torches, four living creatures, 24 elders, all this is going on. But what is most important is not the identity of the creatures. We talked about that in our series through Revelation. And it's not what they look like or who the elders are, but it is their activity. It's not who they are, but what they are doing. What they are doing is ceaseless praise and worship to God as the eternal one and creator. Look at look at chapter four, verse eight. The second part of chapter four, Revelation chapter four, verse eight. And day and night. They never cease to say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. That's what that's what they are doing. So you've got these actions, you've got this this unceasing song of holiness and you have the elders falling down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. Here's what else they do. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God. They're going to do the same exact thing that Peter and John and their friends did in Acts 4. They're going to connect the sovereignty of God with his creative power. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God alone is unique, distinct, and separate from everyone and everything else. That's what Revelation is trying to get into our hearts. Even when we don't see it or participate in it or value it, only God is worthy to receive what others want from you. Especially powerful political figures. They want, they even demand your total devotion, your praise, and your crowns. And what Revelation is making clear is that this one who right now, currently, is in heaven 
is also the slain Lamb of God who deserves your full devotion, attention, and affection. It's not Rome or the emperor. It's not Washington or the president. It's not Russia or the president of the Russian Federation. And it's not the People's Republic of China or their paramount leader. It is God and God alone. He is the one who reigns. The combination of images, again, looks like initially a paradox, a seeming contradiction, but it's not. See, look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. We move from this, this incredible heavenly throne room of God, and in, in Revelation 5.1, John says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. That was an unusual way. It would have been odd for writings of antiquity. They didn't typically write on the front and the back because of what they had available to them. So what this is communi- communicating in its uniqueness is that it is a full revelation And no one gets to add to it. The front and the back are already written on. In God's hand is a scroll sealed up with seven wax seals, but there seems to be no one to open it. So look at verse 2, Revelation 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And let me ask you that question. Who is worthy? Are you worthy? Your favorite Bible study teacher or pastor or leader, are they worthy? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says this, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, this is what John hears, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It's an incredible description. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the Messianic king. Power, lion, rule, Judah. So what John expects, okay, so he hears the elders say that. So what John expects, he's going to turn around, and what do you think John expects to see? He already saw this incredible vision in Revelation 1. He actually fell down as a dead man. So now... The angel is saying, no, there's one who can open it. And he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when John turns around, what does he see? He's expecting to see a lion that looks like a king. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw, this is what he sees, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It looks like it has been sacrificed, but there it stands alive. And that's the whole point. The king, the all-powerful one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords, is the slain lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This picture of Jesus is crucial for understanding of the book of Revelation and God's Sovereignty. Jesus overcame. He conquered his enemies by loving them and dying for them. Not by putting in perfect human leaders or the best human leaders. God and the Lamb are at the center. That's what Revelation is shouting. American politics are not center stage. America isn't even center stage, folks. God is. And God reigns. 
And he has overcome the world, not through a show of force, but through a suffering Messiah. That's what Revelation 5 focuses on. The power of Christ's death. So that, as a result, he saves people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Therefore, the Lamb shares in the identity and the reign of God on the throne. But Nick, no mistake about who the Lamb is. I'm just going to read three more references. And then I'll invite our music team forward after this. This is who the Lamb is. Revelation 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Revelation 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 19.16 And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the fifth stabilizing truth. God and the Lamb are central and they reign. Let us praise God for His sovereign goodness. I'm going to invite our music team forward. While they get in place, I want to read to you a quote from a missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, who saw a lot of hardship and unexpected details in his life. He says this, I am no longer anxious about anything as I realize this, for he, I know, is able to carry out his will and his will is mine. It makes no matter where he places me or how that is rather for him to consider than for me. For in the easiest position, he must give me his grace. And in the most difficult position, his grace is sufficient. And since Christ has thus dwelt in my heart by faith, how happy I have been. Isaiah 40, Isaiah says this, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him. And then finally, before we sing Living Hope, the Apostle Paul to Timothy says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. There again, he's going to bring the sovereignty of God and him as creator who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach into the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now listen to what he says. He who is, Jesus Christ, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.